Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm Geordie's friend who sometimes goes a little too far and commits one or two war crimes, Duncan Nickel. That's right, and we're back. We're, we're wrapping up the, the trilogy as it stands. We are reading Children of Virtue and Vengeance, the sequel to Children of Blood and Bone. Violence. Hmm? It's Children of Virtue and Violence, isn't it? No, no. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's Children of Virtue and Vengeance. I, I think it is. Uh, let me check. Is it actually? One sec. Children. Oh my god, it actually is fair. Okay, you did yeah, read, I, you did I, read the right book, Ryan. We're not going to have to have a very strange episode of this podcast, are we? No, no, no. I read the right book. I just legitimately have gone two weeks thinking it was called Virtue and Violence. I think I don't know. I think my eyes just like saw Children of Virtue and then V, and I just mm-hmm. kind of I don't know. I just filled in the gap. Children of Virtue and Vendettas. Children of Virtue and no, oh, I can't think of another good V word. Violets, no. Then Vi- violets. No, the actual name. Just the flowers. This is what happens when we once again, not to keep beating this dead horse, but dum 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 The same meter for all the titles. They're all the same. This is what happens. I mean, again, no reflection on the book, and it clearly works. Like these, these books, these titles do sell. But once again, I was just like, it doesn't really matter. Does the title really matter, actually? Geordie, answer that question. Does the title of a book actually matter to you? Um, I, um, y- yes. Yes, it does. I'm going to say, yeah, probably it does actually, but only from a selling point. I think, like, yes. I am being... If a title is very stupid, I'm not going to read it, you know? I think ultimately a title has to be, in a weird way, like the absolute microcosm of like the blurb yes that's true that's the only bit you know i'm going to read which is why i i struggle so much with all these children of thrones and bones books you know like it doesn't tell you anything about what the actual content of the book is aside from the fact it's in the same oeuvre of like ya fantasy fiction but let's get a little bit more precise duncan we are reading children of virtue and vengeance the second book in the Legacy of Orisha series by Tomi Adeyemi. Up till now, it is the most up-to-date book, although immediately after our previous episode, where I said, don't expect the next book to come out anytime, I decided to Google it, and it turns out it is find out. It's releasing in, like, October. So I was wrong about that. It's finally coming out. Can you guess, Duncan, what that book is called? I mean, if we go off piece and it's no longer Children of, I will be generally impressed. It is Children of. Uh, Children of... I I don't know. Like, I feel like maybe the word... This is genuinely just a guess. Like, maybe like salvation or like peace. It'll be like a positive word. It'll be something like something very positive. I'll give you a hint that it is alliterative. Just like virtue and vengeance. Uh, Power and piracy. Power and piracy. Now, we are taking some heavy swings. That is not correct. You were closer than your um, previous one because it's children of anguish and anarchy. I mean, that is some negative connotations on that title. That is going to be a major buzzkill. That's going to be so miserable. (laughs) Okay, well, before we jump in then to children of virtues and... 
vengeance. Uh, Jordi, have you read anything else over the last two weeks? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I have still been staying in the realm of fantasy. I've been revisiting some Elric. I decided I, I had COVID, and um, whilst I was doing that, I tried to read uh, The Sleeping Sorceress, but I realized that I couldn't really remember who Theleb Ka'ana was, so I uh, reread first Elric of Melnibane and then uh, The Weird of a White Wolf. And there now, I finally feel ready to keep going with the Sleeping Sorceress. So I'm just trying to think where Sleeping, Sleeping Sorceress. That's the next one after with the White Wolf. That's right. It is sort of a. It's kind of the first one I feel like when it really opens up like the next journey of like the lone, well, lone wanderer. No, he has Moonglum, doesn't he? He does. Now, he does. As his companion, just hobbling yeah. on. Love Moonglum. Great side character. And you enjoying it? Yeah, so far. You know, it's um. It, it, it's a pleasant read. I, I enjoy it a lot. It's a lot better than Fortress of a Pearl. It's just like, it feels like so far, and I haven't got that far into it, it feels like a pretty straightforward, solid fantasy adventure. And it's just a well-written fantasy adventure. So, yeah, enjoying it a lot. Yeah. It was the. Uh, it was actually, the like, I think the fourth one ever kind of, like, compendialized. Mm, that's a good word. You had, like, the original trilogy, which you've only read one of, and then this was the first, like, oh, people want more, but I ended it, but... <laughs> So I think it has that kind of feel of like, this is just a bit more fancy adventure before Moorcock did that kind of jump back to the prequel book. And I have to read oh, what? Order of the Rose? What's the next one called? Oh, it's Revenge of like, the White Rose or something. Revenge of a Rose. That one is a one another Fortress of the Pearl. It's one of those written, it was written, it's a uh, far later than the rest of the series. Okay. And it's good, but very different style. Yeah, interesting. Uh, okay. It has, though, one of my favourite scenes and I said, everyone, this is one of the coolest, like, just visuals that I was like, oh my god, I want this in some sort of, like, D&D campaign. So, sorry, minor spoilers here. All right. But Elric goes to this, like, other universe in it. Mm. And there's this bit where it's, he's in this world where it's like a giant ocean. Mm-hmm. And all the ships are, like, these huge towers. Because the water there is, like, far more viscous than on Earth. Mm-hmm. Or Elric's world, so that you can be so much more top heavy. Okay. And to power them, they have these like giant toad creatures that they tether and basically pull <laughs> the ta- the boat towers through the ocean. Okay. Well, and it's just this really kind of crazy visual. I, I love it. That, but yeah, that's fun. I'm, that's I, forward I'm looking forward to that. That's <laughs> that's weird and wonderful. Uh, other than that, the only other fantasy I've been dipping my toes into. Um, or rather getting my toes chopped off in, is not a book at all. It is the video game Fear and Hunger, which is a much less enjoyable experience. I, j- I can't I can't quit it. I keep going back, but oh, it's horrible, Duncan. It's just horrible. As I'm vaguely aware, it's sort of the predecessor, sort of like Darkest Dungeon I, kind of thing, isn't it? But Darkest Dungeon is my, literally my favourite video game of all time. And it same vein, isn't it? It is the same vein, vein in that it's stuff. a dungeon crawler, which is very unfair. And like you have a sanity meter, and the sanity meter keeps going down. The difference is that Darkest Dungeon is like you're a person managing a team, and like if your hero dies, it's a real buzzkill. But because you really invest a lot in them, but um, you know, hey ho, you're not. It's not you. You're not that hero, so you can just like dismiss them and fire them. Uh, but in this, no, you are the fantasy hero. And when that ogre chops off your arm, your arm is gone. And you just have to keep going with the run with a severed arm. 
there is a situation, Duncan, in this game where you can have a gut full of worms, um, have both your legs chopped off, and just be crawling around a dungeon waiting for someone to kill you. Uh, it's awful, and I can't stop playing. I mean, if that's where you get your enjoyment f- from, I've always struggled with those. So I take it's kind of got that rogue light sort of elements, yeah, kind of randomly generated? A bit. Like, the seeds are a bit different, but it's fundamentally always the same. So there's random elements to it. Like, the contents of boxes that you go along the way are always different. But the dungeons are always more or less the same. So you have a dominant strategy you have to try and follow and just pray you get lucky and you get it right and you... Don't run into a horrible monster who just rips your head off. I think my only pitfall I've ever had with those types of video games is the sense of like, oh, should I just abandon this run now? I mean, yeah, that's a big thing you just do in that game is you wait until you get lucky and then maybe you should save your game. But a lot of the time, you know, it's like, oh, I made a mistake and it's my fault and I just need to start again. And this time I won't make the same mistake. To kind of sense that you're progressing. Exactly. You know? you, Not the character. Exactly. The you character doesn't. You kill that character off like it doesn't matter. You go back, you learn your lesson, and you try again. Oh, no, that is something I can vibe with. Something very kind of Dark Souls-y. It's like, no, no, no. Yeah. Your stats haven't gone up. You've got better. Mm, mm. Anyway, Duncan, what have you been reading? Right. So I've started reading an awful lot, but I finished reading very little. But one thing mm. I did finish reading is the new Conan the Barbarian comic by Titan. Uh, comics. Okay, so who is Titan Comics and what else do they make? Good question. Don't know. Alright, never mind. It's a genuine uh, answer to that one. They're not I Marvel think they might have published. No, I think they may have published the recent uh, June comic tie-ins. Okay. I think that's all I, all I can say and that might even be wrong. But they're owned by Heroic Signatures who I believe also now own the Conan license. So Whereas all Conan comics before were, like, leased. Now it's like, no, no, all one house owns them. So hopefully this will last. Is it good? Given some good sale numbers. Yeah, it is good. All right. Uh, Jim Zub returns as writer. He wrote the last sort of 12 issues of the Marvel, most recent Marvel run. Is he just got a new carrying symbol. where he left off then? Like, he's like, well, okay, whatever. I'm working for a different company now, but who cares? Not quite. Uh, we left off with a really good kind of Katai space story, which is sort of the Japan setting for Conan in Marvel. We've now gone back to sort of more of an origin-esque. It is another Conan go back to Samaria story, which I tend not to be a big fan of, but I, I have faith. Uh, particularly, I really like the art style and the approach. There's definitely an older kind of vibe to this comic. The artwork, and the, I'm so sorry, I have forgotten the artist's name. I will try and remember it later. Um, really invokes sort of John Buscema's work at Marvel mm. back in sort of the late 70s. And it has much more compared to... Um, I'm going to give it to like a lot of modern Marvel, which is not a lot of words, lots of big images. You've speed for it in like four minutes. Mm. This one has a bit more kind of pacing to it. Um, a lot more kind of just narrated voice, actually, which I was quite surprised with. Something that Roy Thomas, who wrote the old Marvel ones, used to do is have actually quite a lot of like narrator passages. Um, so this idea, they never wanted Conan to have a sort of a thought bubble. So Conan doesn't think things. The narrator just sort of goes, and then Conan walked into the dark, his heart full of concern or bravery or discontent or whatever mm. it kind of goes more like that and so far promising start but like i said it's only issue one 
you gotta you gotta wait for these things. Let's see what the first arc turns out like. Well, we we eagerly await your report, Duncan. I don't think I would jump into that one just yet, but here's hoping that it's a great success. Is there anything else you'd like to bring up? To be honest, absolutely not. Like I said, I've got all these things like I'm on the edge, edge of finishing, but I somehow split myself between about three books at the moment, mm, mm. not including uh, Children of Virtue and Violet of Vengeance. <laughs> so. <laughs> Let's hold that off and let's jump straight to... Okay, whatever book we're reading, whatever it's called, let's jump into it, Duncan. Could you please give me your brief overview of what you thought of Children of Virtue and Vengeance? So, for people listening who maybe haven't heard our thoughts on Children of Blood and Bones, please go back and just listen to that now, because it's going to tie heavily into what I thought of that book. Yeah. This was a book, compared to the previous, of accentuating things. I felt what I liked in the first book, I liked more here. Mm. And what I didn't like, or was less keen on, actively moved towards slightly aggravating here. Okay, gotcha. So there are kind of two elements at play in this book, I felt, in the previous one. And that is these really kind of good themes of oppression, uh, looking at sort of a minority group in a society. Mm-hmm. And I think this book explores that Again, in a really nice way. Not necessarily with the strong allegory. I do think it definitely steps beyond maybe where it was originally coming yes. from. Into a I very different context. The allegory is kind of out the window at this point. But, given what this world has set up in the Legacy of Arisha, I really liked how they explored that interplay. What it also has is those kind of YA fantasy kind of trappings and elements, particularly around some of the romances. Okay. And whereas in the first book... Uh, those sort of YA moments, I, I mentioned Avatar The Last Airbender several times because it kind of invoked that to me. Mm-hmm. Now it sort of slipped. Now when we've got our main character, Zaylee, going, oh, how do I feel about Iman? How do I feel about Rowan? I'm like, listen, Zaylee, I, I no longer care. <laughs> the, the war's too interesting and the larger scale politics and sociology of this is too engaging. That sort of the personal level on the romance side, some of the other interpersonal stuff between Zaylee and her brother and um, the princess. Amari. Oh my god, I've forgotten her name. Amari, thank you. I found really good, but just that romance element, I was like, guys, it's not doing anything, particularly Rowan. Yes, Rowan was I think just like, you're... no thanks. Yeah, he's so fucking boring. He's so boring. Like, he's just such a cookie-cutter, bad boy, way fancy, heroic, anti-heroic character. He just he just feels like he's from a different book entirely. Oh, particularly the scene near the end where he has like a cigarette, and I'm like, do we have cigarettes in this world? I don't miss that. I mean, that's or cigars. Yeah, I mean that's fair enough. Like, I'm not saying it's not fair enough. It's just the imagery of like it does raise like someone's like bad talking to him, and he's like lights his cigar and lets him like shit talk him for a bit, takes like a gentle puff, and then like goes in for the kill all sudden. Like I'm like. That scene could be in, like, a mafia movie. It, it could be in a mafia movie, you're right. It does raise some implications about the world. Like, we talked last time about the level of technology. It does imply that, like, they've discovered the new world, because that's where tobacco comes from. So, like, that has its own kettle of fish, right? Maybe that'll be explored in the next book, but, um, they have tobacco. That's crazy, right? And it's our, like, I mean... ge- geographically, it is our planet. That's, they make that very obvious. 
They do. I, I often, you know, I want to give it the benefit just for, well, in Middle Earth, they're smoking up tobacco, whatever. But and I don't, Middle Earth don't is deeply like, care. It's like 20,000 years in our past. It has a different geography, period. Like, we don't have a Bilariad, you know? <laughs> no, fair enough. But you're right, it raises these subtle questions. If I don't super care, but I feel like if I was sufficiently distracted, we wouldn't be talking about it. I think that you've you gotten I mean? on to a pretty important criticism of the book already, which is that there is something seriously lacking in just the person-to-person quality in this book. Like, the relationships feel so strange and different from the previous book. All these new characters we get introduced to, and we get introduced to a lot of characters, very few of them make any kind of real impact. Oh, very few of them. There is a scene in this book where I think we're meant to be very upset over a character death, and I was generally like, "Oh, what that guy from like two scenes?" I like, look. I, I put on. I mean, let's actually let's not jump into spoilers straight away. But I, I was a bit impacted by his death. I can see why someone would be very impacted by the death if they had like a different personal life circumstance. For me, and it, you know, it ties into the theme of the book around young people dying. However. There is something in this book which I think is actually just unforgivable. And that is something which no one likes seen a story, and that is retconning. A retcon, in my opinion, is always a mistake in writing. It, it is an admittance that, you know, you have to go back and change previous ideas. And that is way too present in this book. The thing I feel, just step back. Not about Children of Virtue and Vengeance, just retconning in general. I am not inherently against retconning. What I feel about retconning, though, is if you retcon well, I shouldn't be able to tell that you retconned anything. Sure. I think that's it. If you just make it like, if you genuinely play, it was meant to be like this all along, well enough, I will think that it was like that all along. Sure, yeah. I mean, if you can do it subtly enough, that means that it's not obtrusive. I'm with you on that. Or the other side would be if it's if it leads to something truly great enough, I can forgive you. But you have to lead me to something bloody amazing. It would have to be bloody amazing because in my opinion, all it's evidence of is poor planning or a lack of faith in one's own ideas. And I'm going to explore why retconning is bad in this particular book. And it's about the Titans. Now, in the audiobook I listened to, they're called Titans. Uh, apparently, it's actually spelled Titan, which I didn't realize until, like, re- rereading this book a second time for this podcast. So, I, what did you think of them? They were called, Duncan. Oh, I was, um, I had an audiobook as well. Okay. So, it was Titans. Titans. Anyway, so, in this book, we are introduced to a new magical concept in the world. That is, previously, we've had Magi. And now we have a new type of magical person. These are Tetons. And these are people who are members of the noble caste who, like Inan in the previous book, have suddenly gained magic. Their hair hasn't gone completely white. They just have a single white streak, much like he did in the previous book. And they are different from typical magi in two ways. One... They don't need to use incantations to use their magic, so they are innately more powerful. 
and two, their magic hurts them when they use it. Now, this is interesting, because that's not how it worked in a previous book, was it? No, there is no reference in the previous book that um, Inan was hurt by using his magic. He was hurt, in fact, by not using his magic. When he forced his magic down and tried to repress who he was, like, it harmed him. It was, like, part of a kind of clever metaphor, right? By refusing to be empathic, to use his empathic psychic magic, he was harming not just others, but himself as well. And now it's out the window. Now when Inan uses his magic in this book, he breaks his arm. An arm which, by the way, is not broken in any other scene in the book. Yes. Uh, maybe there was a Titan that uh, healed him. Yes, there must be one of those healers Titans who somehow, you know, heal others whilst hurting themselves, I guess? Uh, hey, it can happen. Um, I, you're absolutely right. And also, it opened up a question about the previous book. In the previous book, there is a magical scroll where if you touch it, it awakens your sort of inne- uh, sorry, internal kind of magical ability. And Inan touches this scroll and becomes a Titan, as we learn in the sequel book. Yes. And you just think, wait, there are a lot of Titans in the kings of the royalty's army in this book. You're telling me that none of them just so happened to touch that scroll that was being moved Well, around? we know for a fact that Amari touched the scroll and she didn't change. I mean, yeah. it's obviously an act of... I mean, here's the thing. This is something that is so obvious in the book that... It's kind of bizarre that the characters never consider this, because right from the start, they go, oh man, you must have just done the magic ritual wrong and given everyone their magic. But they keep saying throughout the book, the gods don't make mistakes. Everything is according to their will. So, they, But they never consider that the Titan are the will of the gods. Like, we know that, Im- that Inan was given his magic by, like, divine intervention. That is something which Zaley believes in the first book. Do you ever come to a point when the characters keep talking about the God's divine will, and this may be because I'm halfway through Good Omens 2 at the moment, where you just go, wow, you must be a real arse here. <laughs> There's a lot of suffering going on here yeah. that could have been avoided. That's that whole bloody free will thing, isn't it? Very problematic. Free will, honestly, gets people nowhere. So... Exactly. This is, is a retcon. It doesn't quite line up with what's established. And you think, well, so wait, was he a Titan? Or he was a Titan, but he was made early by the divine magical will when he touched the scroll. And now his magic is different now that everyone else's magic is just Titan. I also, actually, to be honest, I think what I'm getting at right now is that I think the Titan are like a really bad decision. I think they are really poorly utilized in this book. As like a I think there's a force of bad guys. What do you think, Duncan? I think that I would like to have seen them explored in a different way. Mm. The way these are used is okay. We've just powered up the heroes. That was the whole first book. Get our powers back exactly. so we can like, fight back. Against the big oppressors. thing I was telling you, Duncan, at the end of our last episode was how on earth are they going to be stopped? Because you can't possibly stop them. One eighth of the population now has fantastic magical powers. How on earth do you stop them? And now here's the answer. The bad guys have magic too. And it's dull. Well, no, it's not dull. It's just it's explored awfully. Because now you think the whole point of this is that we have to oppress these people because they have magical powers. Now we have magical powers. 
Yeah, but they have different magical powers, so we're going to keep fighting. And there's very little exploration, I think, sufficient. I'm not saying it's not there at all. Uh-huh. Of, like, Anand's mother has such this hate for the Magi and their powers, and I don't think there's nearly enough self-reflection of, I have magic too. Yeah, and that's that's okay. Like, it's okay that the weird racists are not introspective, because real-life racists are also not introspective. But surely you need to have one scene, just one, where the characters go, what makes us so different from them? If only so you can have the bad guy come up with some justification as to why they're different. What's the plan also? You wipe out the Magi, and you kind of have to wipe out the Tatans? Because they're, they're just going to fall into the exact same role. They're literally just a couple of hairs different of, well, now they're going to be in power Again, in a couple of generations. Like, that's like the logic you can use to fight against a racist, which a racist isn't going to listen to. But you, again, that's why you need that scene. You need that scene for, to see why they can justify the existence of a Titan and not the Magi, because obviously they can find a reason to hate the Magi. They can always find a reason. I'm more concerned with the fact that, you know, there's a big question in the first book. How on earth are they going to over? How on earth are they going to stop the magi when they don't have magic of their own? The answer is now: oh, they have their own kind of magic, but it's a problematic kind of magic when they can't control one which hurts themselves. And I'm really unsatisfied by that answer because it's never clear to me. It's never clear who's winning ever in this book you know this is about a war between the oppressors and the oppressed people it's about a resistance they go and join a group of rebels called the Aika. and the 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 the, 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 the monarchy always thinks they're losing and the rebels always think they're losing so i as a reader i never know what the stakes are No, that doesn't happen. We also, yeah, I mean, we also go to Ibadan, like, her other home village, like, the one she was born in. Yep. And then there's a war crime. Yeah, it is kind of in the first book. Uh, but that's not... Yes, I... Yep. So, I did some maths, Duncan, if you're ready for this. Okay, so, in the previous... So, at the start of this book, we discovered that one-eighth of the population now has magic. That is stated outright. Obviously, it's a rough sum, but it's roughly one-eighth, and the law of large numbers says that that's probably pretty... It's probably pretty solid if it's, you know, you scale it up to a whole kingdom. And one-fifth of those people who can use magic are Titans. So... We now know 
four-fifths of magic users are not Tetons, and one-fifth are Tetons. So that means there are four times as many Magi as there are Tetons. We also know that that means 2.5% of the overall population of Orisha are Tetons. They're the noble new magic users. So how come every single important character on the monarchy side is a Teton? All of them. Every single one. There are no important characters on that side who is not a Teton. It's quite incredible, isn't it? I think it's what a coincidence that the Admiral and the Queen and the King and the General are all super powerful magic users. Uh, and one of whom is secretly a magic user and is hiding up until the exact last second, and two of whom are super duper extra, extra special powerful magic users who can steal the magic of other Titans. Makes you think all the non magic users are doing this. Like, I generally get the impression halfway through this book that all the actual non magic users have kind of just sodded off and gone, Yeah, I'll let them what fight. the fuck does Zane do in this book, right? Oh, so little. He is so misused. It actually pained me. I, in fact, oh, I'm going to have to bring this back to Avatar The Last Airbender. Because it really made me think of the character of Sokka in Avatar The Last Airbender, okay? Right. I was thinking the exact same thing. They're both non-magical people in these magical team-ups. And the question is, how do they stay useful? Now, or interesting. Now, mm-hmm. Sokka, what they do, they do two real key things with him. Number one, he is the funny guy. So in the group dynamic, he is the light-hearted... Well, they're all kind of light-hearted, but he's trying to crack the jokes to keep things going when things get tough. He's goofy. Also, he is the planner. He comes up with yeah. the strategies. And I'm like, what a great thing to give him. He is the warlike general who goes... And he has plans. He has multiple plans. He is the inventor. Mm-hmm. He is the... Uh, there's a great scene where he's like, okay, we've got a ship full of enemies. What are we going to do? Do we fight through them? No. Let's send them all to the cargo bay and just open the cargo bay doors and like spill them out into That's the ocean. That's such a funny scene. They t- say it's someone's birthday or something. <laughs> it's a great scene. <laughs> and I, and oh, and the first week, I forgot to let's see when someone's like, guys, I can't believe I remembered my birthday. Oh God, what a great scene. <laughs> but you're right. You're right. You have a character yeah. who's always useful, who's always funny, even in times when he's like super underpowered compared to everyone else around him. He's still present and he's still part of the story. But Zane literally doesn't even get to go on missions anymore. He does not. He's barely involved in a in the sort of intercharacter relationship as well. He has a very light romance going in this book. Like, very light. I feel like we touch on it twice. Mm-hmm. And then he's off in between. He's just in scenes to go, or maybe not, or let's stand back. If anything, he's the he's voice that... there to just comfort, like, Amari and Zaley alternatingly. I like... That's such a shame because he has such an interesting voice. Because unlike um, Amari, who is so, who is a magic user and has power now, he is truly mm-hmm. the one who's standing in as the ally. He's like, I am really don't have a, a stake in this fight. No one's mm-hmm. trying to wipe me out at the moment. Yeah, yeah. But his voice. I'm very there. glad you just met. You just used a word, Duncan, because I think. A huge, weird theme in this book is the topic of allyship. In the previous book, Imari was on the sidelines. You know, she was involved in the conflict. She never had to be involved. There were plenty of times where she could have just stepped away 
and she didn't have to help, but she proves herself, and eventually, you know, she becomes this figure who can help them, and saves the day. She saves the Resistance numerous times. In this book, she is now a Teton, which means that on one hand, she is now a magic user herself, but more importantly, she is a reviled magic user. The other magi don't like her. They think she's a freak. They think she's an aberration. They think she has stolen something that is an essential part of their culture. And that's where the Titan become uh, uh, kind of hard to wrap my head around because when I first read this book, I ultimately decided that the Titan had some sort of like connection to like um, cultural appropriation. I assumed that was kind of what she was going for, but like they don't really understand the culture. They misuse the culture, and they are now wielding it against the um, the oppressed people. The whole wielding it against them thing, I didn't really get. I'm not sure if that fits in or not, but, you know, it's saying, Amari, this isn't, this isn't your magic. You shouldn't be using it. And that is a good idea. There's a lot of good ideas here. Maybe, you know, the non-clear answers. I'm not saying that's inherently bad, per se, but with Amari, mm. there's this element of... Well, she didn't ask for it. She didn't reach out and take the magic. The gods bestowed it on her just as much as kind of anyone else, based mm-hmm. on my reading. So she does have a right, and she does need to have a voice, because she does represent a new people. And this is the real problem in the book, and this is what I was paying really close attention to. So at the start of a the book, they have a really clear plan. They're going to put Amari on the throne, and she is going to sort out Arisha. Anana's dead, so she's the only person who can take the throne, and the conflict comes into play when it's revealed that Nahanda, her mother, is, she's the queen, and she's kicking butt, and she's oppressing people now. Sarana's gone, Nahanda has taken over. Right. Yes, okay, go ahead, Duncan. No, no, continue. Oh, no, actually, no, I will actually jump in and say this. I was very much kind of disappointed in this. Because I really felt like it was just the King 2.0. It's like, oh no, guys. Because in this scene, Amari... So Amari is stepping forward. She's actually addressing the people and going, listen, join with me. I'll bring us all together. I will create harmony. I'm the bridge between the two worlds. Let me be your ruler. And then her mother comes in and goes, don't listen to her. I am full of hate. And this just gives me this impression of, oh my God, is it just if we kill the evil one on top, everyone else will be chill again? Because that's kind of the impression from the scene. She has the crowd, and then this evil influence of her mother steps in and turns the general populace against her. And I'm like, oh, it's yeah. not deep-seated. It's just one hateful person. It's it's difficult. I mean, I think the point is, is that she's trying to say it's the institution. I think she's what she's banging us over the head with throughout the book is saying, like, it's not the person in charge. The the office itself is corrupt, um, which, you know, fair enough. That's a fair reading to take. And um, but I was I was paying close attention to this in when I was reading through Children of Blood and Bone. And I was trying to see, do these characters, th- these two depictions of Nahanda line up? And no, they don't line up. In my opinion, they are completely different characters. Uh, I, I, I just don't recognize this character at all. Between the horrible woman, like and a clearly an abusive mother in the first book, to being this crazed tyrant... Like, she was quite a meek character who Saran could push around and, like, take advantage of. She just wasn't like this at all. It just, I, I don't recognize the character. I'm inclined to agree. 
this definitely feels like and there's lots of influences that she was either the influential one or she was this planner or this schema um i just don't it doesn't line up as well Mm. she was clearly not a nice person and i do like the idea of maybe now that her husband's out the way you know she's funny stepping out of the shadows but i just wanted a little bit more groundwork so that i could kind of accept it more easily exactly i feel like you need nahanda to be like initially more similar to how she appears in the first book and then over time she starts to adopt more of her late husband's mannerisms and like and you can say like oh you know the throne has corrupted her and it's turned her evil as well even though she was already pretty nasty but then later on in the book as you go no she was always not only was she as bad as saran she was probably worse the whole time which really just doesn't feel like it lines up also it kind of gives this impression of like when um anan and Amira are talking about their childhoods and their memories. Never do they kind of have memories of their mother. It's always when our dad made us fight. Strike, Amari. Strike. Like, that's the scene that keeps getting replayed, is him making them fight each other. There's never any scenes of them them remembering their mother and like, oh, she was really nice at this point, or she was really imposing this view at this point, or I remember her speaking to father this way. Like, there's none of that kind of backstory filled in here, which I really would have been expecting based on her role in the story, you know, in the book as a whole. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what to say to that. It's, um, it's, 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 it's very strange. It's, she's a strange character. What was I going to say before I brought up Nahanda? What were you going to say, mate? I'm uh, very well off on a topic. What I do uh, want to say is that I'm not necessarily saying that I wasn't entertained seeing how these things played out. It's just now that I finished the book, I look back and go, oh, I think I would have liked it a bit more if you just added a bit here or expanded there. Because this book's shorter than the first one as well. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. It's, 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 it's bizarre because um, on one hand... So in, in criticism, there is good criticism, there is bad criticism. And bad criticism is to say, this book shouldn't have been like this. It should have been written like this that's not criticism that's fan fiction so i could tell you what i think this book should have looked like and that would be improper all i can do is respond to what exists on the page all i can say is this book is wonky not a lot (laughs) happens in it like You've got the initial bit where Amari's trying to take the throne and it doesn't work and they join the Iika and then they don't do anything. There's one, there's a highlight of a book. There's this mission they take where they go, like you said, back to the temple we went in before to steal some scrolls and it's the best part of the book because they're doing things and they're all using their magic in interesting ways and then they go back to their hideout and then they stay there. For literally the entire rest of the book. Why aren't they going around Orisha liberating people? I mean, I I literally just said this is not a proper way to, you know, to to (laughs) criticise a book. But, like, what are you fighting for? We never see Orisha. There's only four locations of this book. We never meet any regular Orishans. They never try to help anyone. They're just trying to kill the royal family. But why aren't you, like, proving why you'd be better if you were in charge? Like, what would happen... If they got in charge, because we find out when they come to the Iika that the Iika don't want to put Amari on the throne. They want to put Zaylee on the throne. And this is immediately a sort a, 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 a sort of 
quite subtle source of division between, because Zaley never renounces his idea, and Amari always has it in the back of the head, does Zaley still support my plan? Because this is the plan we had. But what would Orisha look like if they were in charge? And we have no idea. They never, ever, ever talk about what it will be like when they rule. All they ever talk about is defeating the bad guys. But, but what will it be like? Will it be like Amari's the one who has a plan? What's their plan? What do they want to do? And this is a huge question, and I kept reading, waiting to see if I had missed it the first time I read this book, but I didn't. What are they going to do with the Titan? What are they going to do? Outnumber them? They already outnumber them! Well, they're a threat, Geordie. Don't you see? They're a, a minority group in society. But they could blow up a school without a moment's notice. You can't just let them run about. They're so they have dangerous. to come up with Don't... something. Yeah. I'm trying... I'm waiting to do that. I'm waiting for the bit where someone says, and listen, we're not going to do an ethnic cleansing. That would be wrong. And it never happens. And maybe, you know what, maybe most of the time in a book, characters don't have to say they're not going to do an ethnic cleansing. But the thing is, they're kind of racist, right? The Ika, <laughs> they're kind of racist, you know? There are points in this book where I do think that the author sets up some really interesting moral quandaries and really blurs the lines between good and evil. There's a lot of swaths of grey going around. And I almost want to say, listen, this could definitely all be tied together really tightly in a third book. I don't know. I haven't read that yet. It's not out yet. But as it stands, this is messy. And it's interesting messy, but also concerningly so. Like you said, our heroes are, they they do exhibit you know, attitudes of racism, they certainly mm-hmm. are pushing moral boundaries, and it's not always addressed in the way that I feel like it should be or would be by the characters as I know them, or as I think this author has kind of established themselves to be addressing and discussing these issues. There are sometimes where the author does address issues, particularly war crimes, they're addressed. But sometimes yeah. it's not addressed, and I'm like, are you not addressing it because you want to leave it vague, or because you haven't think this is something worth addressing are you fucking ready for this duncan are you fucking ready for the thing that blew my fucking head off when i was doing research for this for this episode i don't think i'm ready but go on (laughs) this is an extract from a time magazine article an interview with tommy adeyemi this is a question and an answer why do you write for young people i don't change my writing style or plot the only part of my, of my work that I change because I am labelled as a young adult author is making sure that everything in my book is a clear example of something good and something bad. Let me eliminate the grey area. Writing for younger audiences doesn't mean it has to be all good and all clean. It is a huge disservice to pretend that childhood means you get a free pass on trauma. A lot of trauma, I think, happens in childhood and then gets carried into adulthood. Then that trauma creates trauma. So you've got to both address it and heal it early. It does go on, and I didn't get it in my screenshot, but essentially she goes on to say, like, to give an example, in any scene where consent might be an issue, she tries to make sure that it's clear that consent is not an issue. But, Duncan, do you think the thing she just said in that Time Magazine article actually has any bearing in the actual content of her book? 
based on my first reading of this, particularly this sequel book, no, not in the slightest. In fact, I've yeah, literally just is, gone around to discuss about... What on earth is she talking about? This what is, is she all about, about Grace. And yes, everything is such a great book. This is not a black and white. Star Wars is black and white, but also has some elements of trauma that happens. This uh-huh. is not that. This is... No, and I like, think it's a good one thing. One of our perspective characters is Inan, the tyrant of the country who can't control the institution which is causing the oppression to happen. And I want to say, it's not necessarily a fault. It's it's something that I feel is pushing at certain boundaries and getting a bit messy as it does so. Very messy in places. But yes. I, I enjoy these elements. That's why I said those are the elements I really enjoy. It's the inter-character thing I think it's getting let down. I really don't understand Tommy Adeyemi's comments there. Not necessarily that I disagree if that was the book she wrote. Oh, I want to make it very clear, black and white, and then explore trauma. That's not what she's writing. It almost alarms me. She thinks that's what she's writing. Um, I can only assume that maybe is that interview was not from the second book. That was a first book interview, and she feels like she's expanded since then. I I can't remember. It definitely had to do with a second book. I but I can't remember if she was writing it or if she um she had written it. She had finished. I can't remember. No worries. I'll tell you one more thing. Duncan, I'll tell you one more thing. Here's a weird character, right? Have you noticed how in this book, Mama Agba is never invited to council meetings, even though she's the seer elder? Like, I hadn't noticed. I assumed that she was, like, not coming or thought herself a but. Why doesn't she go? <laughs> she's... I'll tell you why she doesn't go. Because Mama Agba is, like, a wise, intelligent character. So she cannot be allowed in any of those scenes. Because they really need to keep saying stupid shit and listening to Zaley instead of anyone else. Zaley makes a lot of bad decisions for this book. And that's fine, you know, from the point of view of the writer. You want Zaley's, like, to be guided. The point of the book is, like, Zaley is so traumatized by various stuff that she's not making good decisions. And that's supposed to be frustrating, but you're also supposed to emphasize, em- empathize of her and be like, okay, I understand why Zaley doesn't trust Inan and won't go along with his plans, even though it probably would, it would at least try and solve some of the problems in the book. Maybe it would work, maybe it wouldn't. But if Mama Agba was there, people would turn to Mama Agba for advice because one, she's very clever, and two, she can see the future. It's not and used. The past, and the present. You know, when you have like a whole clan of people who are all the Kwisatz Haderach, maybe they should have a bit more of a bearing on what happens in the no, book. You're absolutely right, though. There is a wonderful council scene in this book where, like, they're having an argument, and then it's like, and then all eyes turn to Zadie to have the final say. And you're like, why? Not why I know they think oh she's a warrior of death you know I get where she's revered but you're right Mama Akbar is the wise old person like no one goes they should all I should turn to her and also she has shown in this book that she is very much supportive of Amari and her position or at least she's very empathetical to it she's sympathetic yeah yes even better so. And obviously with her sight, you think, oh, she she sees, well, you know, Amari has a, a role to play. Why not show up at the council and go, guys, I, maybe we should listen to her. Unless, unless, sorry. I don't, but the thing is, I don't think, I don't think she agrees with Amari's plans. Like, I don't think she, she agrees with her period. I think she's just more like supportive. 
I think you said I made notes on the scene where like Amari is in need of guidance and Mama Agba comes to her and like it's really bad advice. It's really bad advice because in the future Amari is going to go on to do a war crime and Mama Agba is her advice is you are strong. You have to look beyond the surface. Keep doing things your way. But Amari doing things her way leads to an entire village of people being slaughtered. All I can say is this is some sort of like Doctor Strange level of like she's seen into the future and she knows there's only one way that they ultimately win. And that's for her yeah, to not need get to be saved. super traumatized from killing it from firebombing a village. It, it, they just couldn't because if she didn't attack the village, they wouldn't learn of their ma- extra magical healing powers. See? They did know about the extra magical healing oh, powers. Yeah. We already told about it because Mama. I, I just there's way too much stuff which is just made up on the fly in this book. Like centers, like Nahanda and Amari can siphon magic away from other Titans to increase their magic, uh, but only those two. No wait, and also the general is later revealed to have that power, but it's never revealed up ahead of time that she has that as well. It's just suddenly, suddenly she is a center as well. Um, that felt really. Uh, it felt really like it was just being pulled out of nowhere. I didn't like that remotely. And then the moonstone is invented as opposed to the sunstone. It's like, oh, I'd never bothered to mention a moonstone before, but it's always been a part of our world that you could combine your magic and, in fact, it's been used before. It actually oh, reminds God. me, and we haven't read this book, and we probably will read the first one, even though I, I'm not a big fan of the author as a some of his kind of personal things that go around, but Scott Lynch, uh, The Lies of Locked Memora, the Gentleman Barter series... Mm. The second book of that <laughs> reminds me of this for the simple fact of having okay. such a strong opener and then feeling like it dropped the ball mm-hmm. completely. Going from a book that you're just like, are you okay? Like, you're making sort of plotting decisions. You've got some good ideas here, but sometimes it's just some plotting decisions. You're like, why? Why have you introduced that now? There's, like I said, like the, the powers, you know, like, it's actually introduced almost immediately upon use. And immediately it's introduced upon, like, when that would kind of, like, complicate or engage the situation. Yeah. It's like someone... You gotta do setup. Yeah, it's a setup. It's like you don't have someone in a fantasy setting run onto the battlefield and then in the middle of, like, the fight go, do not worry, I have my legendary ballista weapon and, and with it I can destroy our entire enemy's army and that's it. Mm-hmm, like, it, mm-hmm. oh, it frustrates me because I'm just like... Why are you making these decisions? I, you're good author. Sorry, I'm getting a little bit too intense here. Maybe I'm feeling more than I did. But there were just these little niggles, this kind of messiness. And I don't want to say, I don't want to speculate about what's going on. Duncan just had a LucasAid alert, so he might be he might be really energetic throughout the rest of the episode. I, yeah, it was great. Um, I don't want to kind of over put too much on the author because I don't know. But the shorter length the messiness it does feel a little bit to me geordie that maybe that first book was the long planned like this is my vision and this book no it wasn't actually that book was written in a rush for a competition wow okay well that changes everything i'm about though because this book feels like it was written on the rush as like a response like that was successful sequel I mean, gotta maybe. get out now yeah maybe like you you're the number one why fancy orphan the world you've got to write the next book maybe that's exactly what happened at least the next book, that's not going to be the case. Like, five years between books. No, four years, maybe. So the next book will be well-considered. And, you know, she has plenty of time to wrap things up. Um, Talking of things coming out of nowhere, Geordie, can I ask you? 
You could be literally mention literally any part of his book right now. I have no idea where this is going. And maybe this is too early to say, but Geordie, how did you feel about the climax? <sighs> I cannot believe this climax. The first time I read this through, I hated the end of this book. I hated it so much, and I I really thought this time I would see something I didn't see last time, but I just couldn't. Like, what the hell happened to Amari, man? This is not the same character. This isn't her. I don't recognize his character. I, I never use this word because most of the time people abuse it, uh, this phrase rather, but character assassination. Amari's character was assassinated and she was replaced by some duplicate. She makes some moral ethical decisions that, again, don't feel like they have sufficient setup don't feel consistent. When I think back to the character, even at the start of this book, I'm like, how have you concluded this? And I do, there is an element here, so I do want to say, so Amari makes some bad choices, I'm going to say. I do quite enjoy the fact that throughout this book, she constantly thinks back on what her father told her. Constantly, great thing, strike Amari, is like repeating her head continuously. And at no point does she go, Maybe I should stop thinking about what my, uh, you know, genocidal father <laughs> used to tell me in that abusive training session we had. Here's the thing. So, Strike Amari is used as a motif a lot in a previous book to show her, like, needing to seize the day and take action and be bold like her father. And it reaches its culmination when she kills her father. And there's this clear determination in this book where she says right before she kills him, I will be a better queen than you. And then she kills him. It's the ultimate act of her choosing one side over the other. You know, it's to say, oh, Amari is so in on helping these people that she's ready to kill her own father. And then in this book, it's like, Amari is so fucking crazy that she'd even kill her own father. There's this line later when she's locked up in jail uh, for war crimes, which is like, I know who I am now. I'm the daughter of King Saran. I'm the daughter of Queen Nahanda. I am my parents. What a fucking horrible, horrible thing to say in this book. You know, this book is about, it's about racism. It's about bioessentialism. And now you have characters saying, you can't escape who you are. You know, you were born this way. You were born wicked and bad. Zaylee's good because she had good parents. You're bad because you had bad parents. And, like, even if that's something you want to fight against, and I get the feeling in the final chapter or the penultimate chapter, Amari's like, no, 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 I'm going to prove I'm better. Why the fuck did she poison an entire village with Agent Orange to discover that, right? No. That's insane. Do you know what bothers me? And I am not a fan of this infection because it always feels like a cop-out. And that is sparing the villain. Okay? Particularly... Yeah! It's so crazy! When you spare the villain after you've just cut down a bunch of those nameless, not as important people to get to them. There are so many scenes... I cannot believe this. Right. And... Anti-penultimate chapter, right? Anti-penultimate chapter. Zaylee is marching through the city. They're all souped up and extra powerful now. They get so many crazy power-ups in this book. The last one is the strongest of all. And a whole squad of soldiers run towards her. She just clamps her fist. She says a magic word and they all fall down dead. And she smiles like a psychopath. 
And then the next scene, we're supposed to be like, oh yes, Imari has, has, has grown and she's ready to not kill her mother. Even though, like, we were totally behind her killing her father in a previous book, because of course we were. That was the morally right thing to do. She saved everyone by doing so. Now it's bad and she shouldn't do it. Okay, I do want to just have a little bit of separation that we we can stand here and we're like, yes, in our perspective, it was completely morally right to murder her father. And I do agree with you. It was but completely it morally right. It does make me go, that I'm sure there are people in the world who would disagree. Give a great character example. Aang from Avatar The Last Airbender. What a fantastic Why character. Why are you bringing up Avatar The Last Airbender? It's not like it's super relevant to the rest of the book. Ugh, well, but that's a great example of a character not killing the villain because they don't kill. Because they haven't killed yet. And then that's their hard mm-hmm. line and they will work hard to find a way around it. There's, it really upsets me when... I'm trying to think what's a, really, what's a, what's a great example of this that really upset me. There's quite a few. Right. There's an, okay. This is out there. Jordy, do you ever play the PlayStation video game Heavy Rain? Uh, no. I, I know what you're talking about, more or less, but right. go ahead. It's a video game. It's like a murder mystery. It's a multiple choice. Things are telltale. You kind of pick your own progress for the story anyway. There's a scene in that where you, like, storm into, like, a mafia boss's house. And you are, and it's like the gameplay is you're shooting all of his, like, mobster friends. All of, like, the guards. You shoot up the whole place. You get to him... And then it's like, do you want to do the morally good thing and let him go? Or do the evil thing and finish him off? And you're like, I have killed like 16 people to get here. Why is it now suddenly bad to kill the big bad? Yeah. Have it's consistency. Such a, it's such a tired trope. It's such a tired, tired trope. <sighs> the end of this book is, um, the, the book as a whole is wobbly. Uh, the end of this book is slapdash. It's uh, it's absurd, and frankly, it's a little insulting. I paid money for this. I didn't. You're going to really give me this? This? Just to be clear, um, I didn't steal this book. I got it from a library. Just, you know, not... Support your local library, people. That's, I'm glad you didn't spend money on this book, Duncan. Maybe that's why you have an overall better reaction to this book than I do. So the end of this book is... Inan sends a letter to Zeli. And throughout this entire book, he's been like, I can find a peaceful resolution to this. I can find a way to stop. Um, I can find a way to stop this peacefully. I can find a compromise. You know, he is essentially um, a centrist. You know, like, he doesn't want to dismantle the entire institution itself, but he does want to make social progress. And he thinks that by, like, adding a few laws and changing that, um, you know, he can uh, he can improve things. He's like Lyndon B. Johnson, right? I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say, I'm really sorry, but as a, the, in the British education system, my, my general knowledge of civil I was lit- is, is I, limited. But. Bro, I was literally about to explain who he is. Come on. Okay. Dallas, 1963. JFK gets shot in the head. His vice president, Lyndon B. Johnson, takes over. Lyndon B. Johnson is a jerk. He's an asshole. But he does carry on JFK's, like, uh, movement towards better social change and motivated by you know, civil rights, uh, the civil rights movement going on in America in the 1960s, particularly stuff like Martin Luther King, he ultimately passes two really important uh, pieces of civil rights uh, law, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in 1964 and 1965, which are super, super important to this day, pieces of law which have improved the, you know, the lives of 
uh, of black people in America immeasurably compared to where they were in the 1960s. Now, of course, the civil rights movements in America has carried on to this day because there are so many systemic problems that this book is talking about, particularly police violence, and police violence has not been fixed by any law. So what we have here is we have a man in a position of power who is not affected by the bigotry himself, who still thinks that he can solve it by adding laws. And this book is saying that's not enough. Adding new laws isn't enough to change it because the system is so fundamentally broken. That is a, that is a sentiment which I am sympathetic to because think about it this way, right? Right from the start of his book, the Yika want to put Zaley on the throne. But the Black Lives Matter movement started under President Barack Obama. It didn't start during the Trump administration. It began when a black man was the President of the United States. It didn't make racism go away. It doesn't matter who's in charge. As long as the system is the same, nothing will ever change. And the funny thing is... At the exact same time, Zaley has his realization, and she says, we need, to, we need to change, we need to overthrow the monarchy. And once again, she doesn't have a political model she wants to replace it with. She just says things need to change, and I'm going to overthrow the government to do it. But Inan does. Inan says, we're going to dismantle the throne, and we're going to send things back to when it was run by the Magi clans. But Zaley attacks anyway. Like, even though they agree, even though they're on the same page, even though they're literally going to try and do the same thing, she still breaks in, and she still slaughters dozens of people, and she ends her ultimate chapter with her hands around Inan's throat while she doesn't fight back as she strangles him to death. This is where the allegory really needs to take a back seat. Because there is an interesting, if you take it away from the real world context, these are quite engaging ideas to explore in a fantasy setting. But you've also got to understand that from my perspective as a reader, what's going on? Who am I meant to sympathise with? I am lost emotionally. And I think that that does really hamper the the whole novel. Because you spend a lot of this book where Amari is saying a lot of really clever stuff. She's pointing out a lot of really obvious stuff, like we need to try and like reach a compromise with these people. You know, that's something which you could be like, okay, yeah, you need to try and get the law changed and try and make progress that way. The Aika said, no, we don't want to make slow, systematic progress. We want to do a big overhaul approach. We want to just completely revolutionize the system. And so Amari sounds quite reasonable, and then you're rewarded for believing that Amari is reasonable because she becomes this this uh, the straw man. She's fucking crazy by the end of the book. Oh, you're ridiculous to ever believe in Amari. But that's why I think it would be much more interesting to have those conversations about what comes next. And I can understand the explosion. Yeah. It's very interesting, I say, that she's so consumed by the hatred that she's not thinking about what comes next. But even under uh, Inan's idea, or oh, we'll go back to being ruled by the clans. So what? One-eighth of the population will rule over the other, you know, seven-eighths with a completely out-of-order power balance. That's the better plan. You've traded the minority of the 2.5 for the one-eighth. I mean, that is going in the right direction. I I can't fault them for that. Getting closer. (laughs) Getting closer. (laughs) The final chapter 
ends with Zaylee strangling Inan to death. And then, unexpectedly, a big column of white smoke comes rushing down the corridor. It consumes her, it knocks her unconscious, and then she wakes up in the epilogue, a very brief epilogue, in which she's in a slave ship in the middle of the ocean. And then the book ends. This has no setup. This is no setup. It feels like such a cop-out. Like, they are untouchable. They are so untouchable at the end of the book. We have not made this clear yet. The characters are so overpowered by the end that they can cure death. Death has no consequence to these characters. As long as someone dies and isn't one of the ten who can do this power, anyone else, they can bring him back to life. And it kind of does frustrate me, because this was a thought I had in this book and in the previous book. What's the wider world doing outside of Russia? Like, are all the other nations sitting there going... Why do they only they have magi? Or the nation's going, why don't the magi just move into our countries? We'd they have magi then. as well. That's made very clear, Duncan. That is made very clear. Apologies, it got lost in the shuffle. I, so I, then, I, I, I'm, totally fine. Doing? I'm totally fine with like the other countries outside not being involved at all. It's, it's for me, you know, you want to have a story that focuses 100% on an African country for a change? Yeah, fine, absolutely, go ahead. That's not a problem in my book. I know, but I'm also a little bit like... Because Inan at no point talks about... Did the king have allies? Is there another king who will send aid? Are they completely isolated? Is no one else looking at their borders going... Hey, I think their monarchy just collapsed. That's actually a good question. Do you want to take a slice of it? I, that's a great question. I'd never considered that. Do they trade? Do they have trade routes? Who? Someone must be losing money somewhere. Like what's happening this is such a small book it's five locations and all right you don't necessarily have to talk about the wider geopolitical situation i do get that we want to focus on the one nation but either the characters need to be good enough that i don't notice or don't care or b you just need to throw me a bone something a line something that shows me you had a thought to it man so i was pretty disappointed by this book I think it's fair to say that I was too. Yeah. Like, the first book does such a good job of setting it up. And, you know, it's a simple story, but you really enjoy spending time with the characters. And there's great conflict between the main character and um, and the villain or the, like, anti-hero Inan. And uh, none of it lasts to this book. Zaley and Inan speak in, like, two scenes. Two of them I think I need to remind our many many listeners that geordie you used up a veto not a veto a destiny point faith point a destiny point. What we call our little destiny token destiny point destiny token geordie's special power to force which book we pick on one of my weeks and he used it to make me listen to this sequel yeah i did which i can only conclude he wanted me to like the first one less it was like duncan you can't leave this being happy uh, you've got I to come to I my level never endeavored to make you like the first one less but I do find this book fascinating. And to, to make something really clear, I wanted to like this book. I was really hoping that the second time through, something would click and I would like it more. Because this book gets really positive ratings. You know, it's really... Uh, it has five stars across the board. But I also noticed something else. And this is fascinating to me. So I read through 
this book a second time, and I got to this Rowan scene, and I was like, oh, I suck, fucking can't stand Rowan. I wonder who's the more popular ship for her. So, I went to Archive of Our Own. Duncan, do you know what Archive of Our Own is? Not a clue. Okay, Archive of Our Own is one of the largest fan fiction sites in the world. And in it, I decided I would search for who gets more ships in their fix. Who's the more popular ship? Is it Inan and Zaley? Or is it Zaley and Rowan? Or is it even, like, Zaley and Amari? Who knows? I go look. There are 20 fix for this, for this book series. This is one of the most successful YA fantasy novels to come out in years. And no one is writing fan fiction about it. Interesting. How that is bizarre. People love to write stories about uh, about these. Like, I'm going to look up Mortal Instruments right now. Mortal Instruments, Cassandra Clare. How many fics are we going to have? Uh, 10,110 oh. works. Okay. Perspective, thank you. Yeah. I'm inclined to say, if I had to spit for why that might be, and it goes back to the same point we keep hammering and hammering home. The TV no show one's... version, by the way, Duncan, has 34,000 versions. Oh, Actually, Blumel. Um, is that... I don't think people... I at least get the same engagement from the characters. If you want to write into a fictional world, quite often you want to put the characters you love in different situations or pair them up differently and explore the interactions. Mm -hmm. No one wants to necessarily write, I don't know, Lord of the Rings just to explore if the armies met on a different battlefield. What if Mm -hmm. the orcs had different weaponry? Like, that's not what you would do. Well, maybe. But then you'd explore how the characters would respond to that. And I just don't feel that same... I don't want to spend more time with these characters. In fact, by the end of this book, while they were interesting, and I was, you know, I was still engaged, Zane, Betty has anything, became boring. Zaley and Amari both became sort of unpleasant to be around, um, even if they did have quite a lot of interest going on. Inan... I like what he was trying to do, but even then, I don't want to share a room with him. There is no one that I kind of like to be with. I think Rowan I was meant to like to be with, and I just found him grating. Yeah. Oh, God, I don't like being this negative, my friend. It's... No. Because I don't... I had to do this book, Duncan. I really did. Yeah. Because... Because it's fascinating. It is fascinating. We loved the first book. How did it end up like this, right? How did it end up like this? We get to this point of what are we trying to say? You know, ultimately what matters is should someone read the book or not read the book? And I'm actually finding this very challenging because I recommended that people read Children of Blood and Bone. And I kind of stand by that. Sort of unfortunate. It kind of reminds me of watching something like watching something like force awakens where i was like that mm. was a good film but it was the promise that really made me like get giddy in my seat 
Mm-hmm. That's how I kind of felt with Children of Blood and Bone. That was a good book, but it's the promise of where we're going to go next. We've beaten the big bad. And this was a very kind of disappointing follow-up for me. I was engaged by a lot of the murky greyness morality-wise going on. But by the time I hit that final few seconds in the audiobook, I was done. I was disinterested. In fact, Geordie, I have to admit, I stopped making notes about two-thirds into this book. Like, I struggled to I care. I had to start taking notes. I had to start taking notes to keep myself interested. Do you recommend this book, Geordie? I can't. I can't recommend it. And in fact, I wonder if I can even recommend Children of Blood and Bone at this point. Like, what's the point of reading the first book if it doesn't go anywhere? Am I just setting people up to be disappointed by recommending it to them? That is a very good question. I don't know. No, that's an excellent question. I think, I, I think it really comes down to the next book. I think it really does. If the next book sticks the landing and it makes it all worthwhile, then it was worthwhile and I will forgive the second book. But as it stands, it's actually kind of insulting. You spend time with these characters, you learn to love these characters, and now you get punished for liking them because you've decided that Amari can't be the president and therefore she's now a fucking psycho. I think... I almost can't believe I'm saying this. I think I actually come down slightly differently. I think mm-hmm. I do still... kind of recommend this. I recommend the. I still recommend the first book, and I don't think I want to not recommend the first book based on this disappointing follow-up for me. Because I do think there's mm. just enough in the first book that if you just read that, as I originally did, and was happy to go along with my life, then you can enjoy that. If you want to see what happens, go with a warning. Go that things get complex. Go that things get messy. More so than complex. There was engagement in here, and there were ideas, but it was a bit of a, bit of a stew. You know, the flavours, they weren't balanced. There were gritty bits that I did not like. And it was not a satisfying uh, meal. But it was at least interesting to talk about it. And in a weird way, I think if, you're do- if, you've-, if you've got a book club or a part of our book club, that's mm-hmm. kind of the format here, then maybe give this a go just so you yourself can kind of look at it and go, what happened? But don't go in thinking to be happy. Would you have finished this book if I... You know, if you didn't have to do a podcast on a Saturday. I mean, I wouldn't have started this book if I didn't have to do a podcast with you. Uh, no, I wouldn't have finished it. I, I know. No, you're right. If you you're right. I wouldn't have up. finished it. I would have DNF'd. I think I would have not finished this. Um, I think somewhere along the point where they return from that sort of middle mission to get this, the magic scrolls and they were mm-hmm. sitting in the fortress. I would. Do you know what? When I stopped making notes, because that was ultimately was a sign that I'd lost interest. And I listened to the end of this book on two times speed for about the last four Again. hours. Yeah, I was on 1.35. Well, that is actually quite damning now I think about it. Oh, people, I didn't want... I'm glad you brought up A Force Awakens, Duncan. And there's a reason for that. Okay, segue. Uh, this is something I completely forgot to bring up last time we recorded an episode. And I, I meant to bring this up because I've been saying this for years and finally I can make people listen to me and in my insane theory, all right? Go on. So, Zaley, Duncan, what weapon does Zaley use? Um, I mean, in this one, she basically doesn't use her weapon, but it's a staff, isn't it? Or a 
Yeah, about. she doesn't actually use it. It gets it even gets like a like a level up. She she gets a power boost to the to the staff, but she she never uses it actually. Uh, but she uses a staff. That's her quintessential weapon. Yeah. And uh, her main antagonist is Inan. What's his main weapon? Does he use a sword? Yes. Do they get connected telepathically? Now. Yes. Okay. And he serves the big bad evil guys and she serves the resistance. Then the big bad dies and he, instead of going good, uh-huh. steps into his place. That's right. So it's not even just Avatar. It's a heavily disguised Kylo Ren Ray ship fic. Call it what it's called, mate. It's a Raylo. A Raylo, yes. This is hidden Raylo dark lore, Duncan. Am I wrong? I mean, probably, but let's pretend you're right. I'm so fucking right. It's everywhere. It's everywhere, Duncan. And now you have to see things the way I do. Yeah, hey, guess what? In that first book, he keeps his hel- his his face covered the whole time. You know, like with a mask. Except this time it's a helmet. And he's pulled towards the light, Duncan. He does have a difficult relationship with his mother and father. Hidden Raylo Fick. Children of virtue and violence. Oh, we're still reading the next one though, aren't we? I mean, that's up to you, Duncan. Okay, we're still this reading the next choice. one. Because I, st- I I need to see. If this crashes and burns even more, I kind of want to see it. Really and if it redeems it. itself, good. I hope it does. I want it to redeem yes, itself. Yes, and that's part of why I, I made you read it. Is because I want to read the next book. I really want to. And I want to do it on the thick. Because it'd be great to go into it completely fresh. And... I really want to. I really want to read it. It's been four years, Duncan. It's been a long time. I've waited a long time for so this. You, I was a different man back then. You, you think four years is a long time in fantasy literature? Oh, my sweet summer. Yes, child. Duncan. Four years is a long time in fantasy literature. Shut up about him, okay? You can't keep thinking about George. It's not healthy. I haven't sat my GCSEs when I read the last one, Geordie. I own property now. Duncan, a lot of things change. A lot of things can change in four years. I have a mustache now. We gotta put that on the on the podcast art. <laughs> oh, in that case, mate, uh, my uh, hairline needs to go back a bit. <laughs> Let's move on then. Duncan, do we have anything else to say about children of blood and bone? Not at all. Greener pastures, my friend. I wonder if people are going to be mad at us. If you are mad, please this book pretty high ratings. Message us on Instagram um, I- and tell us how mad you are. Love to hear from you. Or if you agree with us and you're like, finally, someone's speaking for the silent majority on this. Also reach out to us on our Instagram, if it's just fantasy podcasts. Uh, Also follow us there, that would be great. We look forward to potentially hearing from you about how much we don't understand about your Raylo fanfiction and why it's not actually Raylo fanfiction. It's clearly Ray Ray Poe fanfiction. I know that's out there as well. I know that's out there, I'm very disappointed by it. Everyone knows that Poe and Finn are the power couple that should have been. Yes! Yes, 100% agree. Unironic. Duncan, what are we doing next time? I'm just kidding. I know what we're doing next time. Tell me more about it. So, as people who listen to our Children of Blood and Burnest over know, I was originally going to put forward Secret of the Girls to be our book. And now that... Silence of the Girls. Silence of the Girls. Oh my god, I've forgotten my own title of the book I picked. Well, now it's been a fortnight already, and after reading this... I'm gonna say I still want to read that book immensely 
but I actually think I'm in. I'm just in the mood for a slightly different flavour today. Duncan, I already bought it! <laughs> so, sorry if you'd already started reading Silence of the Girls, but I just want something a little bit more punchy. Uh, something that maybe is <laughs> going to make me feel a little less. Something a little bit more direct. And I think I found just the thing. Geordie, have you ever heard of an author called C.L. Moore? Ah, uh, no, Duncan, I've never heard of C.L. Moore. Who is C.L. Moore? C.L. Moore was a contemporary of one of my favourites, Robert E. Howard, with work published in Weird Tales magazine. Ah, uh, I do know this, okay. And one of her most... She was writing Sword and Sorcery back in the 1930s. Yes, that's that's crazy. That's really... Uh, you told me about this before, I remember now, and I was really excited for when we did this on on the podcast, because I had never heard of her before, or her character. She is an incredibly prolific author. She wrote some Many have a lot of science fiction where she had a real power couple with her husband. They co-authored loads of books. But this is one of the ones of her sword and sorcery kind of heroine characters. Long before characters like Red Sonia ever came into the picture, we have Jarell of Giori. Mm. I hope I've pronounced that right. <laughs> I, I assumed it was Jiriel, but who knows? probably right there and these are short fiction in fact there was only five short stories ever written and i seen that their combined lengths come to only about 175 pages geordie i'm gonna kind of put them all forward to the table now that is cheating well but sure whatever they're combined in one bindings that counts we only did Elric of Monibane. We didn't do all of the combined books in the confusingly titled Elric of Monibane. There are a lot of stories in Elric of Monibane. Aside from just Elric of Monibane, the story of Elric of Monibane. Can you imagine if I put forward Lord of the Rings as like one book? I went, yeah, not going to split that up into multiple episodes. Get it done. D- well, man, we split Berserk into two episodes. I-, I would just cut it in two. So, are you excited, Geordie? Something a bit different, quite a different flavour. Duncan, I spend actual money on Silence of the Girls. I am excited, but I'm also really annoyed at you. I can't believe your vengeance has come so soon and so unexpectedly. Don't worry, we'll get to it one day. It's already downloaded on my phone, Duncan! Jewelry of Jurel... No, Jurel of Jewelry. I see Elmore. See you in two weeks, mate. See you in two weeks. Bloody hell. Bloody hell. Bye, everyone. Goodbye.